Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Scott Becker, welcome to the Groves Connection. Dr. Groves, thank you so much for having us. What a pleasure to get to visit with you today. Thank you very, very much. You know, I am so excited about uh, this opportunity to ask you some some questions about uh, how you got where you are and, and the milestones along the way and wherever else this conversation takes us. But uh, I start way back. So I want you to think about... Uh, elementary school days uh, you know what was your life like growing up uh, where did you grow up and and uh, what were you thinking you know uh, you know at that age some of us are thinking I want to be a fireman or a policeman uh, you know what was your what was in your mind uh, at that age and and how did that uh, evolve sure no that's a great question and fascinating to drop back on it so I'll give you three or four things from my early upbringing one grew up in a community called Skokie, Illinois, and, and Skokie's claim to fame. And you have to remember, I grew up, I was born in 1964, grew up in the 1970s, 80s, but Skokie's yeah. claim to fame, it, we had the highest percentage of Holocaust survivors in our community of any community. So it had a sort of really fascinating wow. perspective and situation. A couple of my close friends' parents were Holocaust survivors, you know, and, and, it, and, and that sort of upbringing and period of life and spot you know, led to both an upwardly mobile community, but also a very paranoid community in its own way. And so it's so mm. funny because your name is Groves and talked about in a podcast this morning, Andy Grove, the, the sort of founder of Intel and his famous phrase, only the paranoid survive. Yes. And, and we grew up in a community with a lot of nervous energy and a lot of a lot of everything. And it was a wonderful community, but it was a fascinating community because it was of, of 70,000 people. We numbered like 10,000 Holocaust survivors, which was an incredible wow. percentage of, of people yeah. that had come out of sort of Nazi Germany. So it's a fascinating, fascinating, you know, community. We we had grown up in a, in a family that did not have a lot of money. They were fine. Uh, and then, you know, lost jobs at different times, different types of things. And, and it led very clearly to in that community at that period of life, and there's communities like this today, you sort of had three choices as a profession. You could be an accountant, lawyer, or doctor. Those were the three yeah. choices coming out of a, that kind of society where the parents weren't that, but that's what they saw for their kids. And it wasn't right. like, uh, but it was it was like the Wonder Years. That was the TV show. It was yes. like the Wonder yes. Years of, of growing up and so forth. It was just a very, very close. My parents still live there. They're still in that community, which is 10 minutes from us. Um, and, and my best closest friends from growing up are all from there. And it was just a wow. fascinating period of life. It's, it's, um, there's so many immigrant communities today that have the similar mantra in certain communities, it would be, you're allowed to be a, you know, a doctor and engineer, you know, and you could be an incredibly successful executive, but if you weren't a doctor or engineer, your parents are like, 
we thought you're supposed to be a doctor or engineer, but it, it was, you know, and then of course, as you get older, as I ended up at, you know, and it's, it's embarrassing to mention this because everybody does it who's from Harvard. I ended up at Harvard Law School at some point. And, and when you're at Harvard Law School, it was very eye-opening. So I went to University of Illinois first as an undergraduate and people were very much like myself in different ways. They might've been from right. downstate yeah. Illinois, they might've been forever, but they weren't from families from Manhattan or families that had had family wealth or families that had other things looked at things differently. It was a lot of people that were upwardly mobile trying to figure it out. Did you have law on your list very early? Was that, you know, in elementary school, you figured that, you know, with those three options, was that the one that you thought you'd be pursuing? The model of people growing up in these entrepreneurial, sort of burgeoning entrepreneurial worlds were you'd have a professional degree and then you, you know, the, the typical thing back in the day is that the people that were sort of like people were, were, role models, at least entrepreneurially, uh -huh. were people that were also like, they were typically also doing something in real estate, for example, back in the day. Gotcha. Like Sam okay. Zell grew up in an area not too far from us who just passed away, famous real estate investors. But people sort of looked at it as you'd be a professional, you'd also be doing some sort of business or something else. And, and over time, yeah. you, you develop financial stab stability and security. I, I really had not planned on being a lawyer. The lawyer was not the thing. And then I did really well on my law school admissions test. I uh, took the law school admission test, the GMATs they were called. I took both of those. I did incredibly well on my law school admissions test and ended up getting into Harvard Law School. Wow. I was very fortunate. And this is to brag about my parents, not about myself. I, I was offered a complete full scholarship to go to University of Chicago to law school. And I was from a family that had no money. Literally had no money. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. The, 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 the beauty of my parents were like, I had that and I also had the opportunity to go to Harvard Law School where there was no scholarship. It was, you're going to go and you're going to pay. And my parents, who really didn't have money, were very much along the minds of, you know, you got into Harvard Law School, we'll go to Harvard Law School, and we'll figure out how to make sure we can pay for it because it's sort of like, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime thing or, or a, right. you know, a thing. And they thought the idea of a kid that went to Harvard Law School, this was the be-all and end-all, of course, you know, as, yeah. it, as it turned out, not not so much so, but but they were uh, uh, they were very supportive when we had this opportunity and, and we went to visit in Chicago, a wonderful place, and they were so, you know, and, but no, I ended up at law school largely because I did great on my LSATs, and then it was sort of like, how can you pass up the opportunity to go to Harvard How can you turn that down? Yes. I mean, you get a, you, you get an invitation to Harvard Law School. Who turns that down? Now, I want to go back to, to high school for just a second, though. Um, uh, were you, you must have been a good student in high school, to, to uh, or was it purely on the LSATs? Or I mean, I was a good, good student. I was like, you know, we had a class of 650. I finished as top four to five percent. But I was never gotcha. like, one of my best friends was the valedictorian. I was never, I was always a very good student. But one of the things that's wonderful about Harvard and, and I mean, not whatever, is one of the things that, that Harvard is different than, let's say, Yale. Yes. Harvard admissions was based on this concept of, yes, a very good student. Yes, very intelligent, at least by they used to measure it, whether right or wrong. And then third, very involved in stuff, very involved uh -huh. as like a student leader and other kinds of things. So if you looked at like Yale, where I was not admitted to, Yale would be as a much smaller class and, and would, 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 would credential based strictly based on just how intellectually smart is this person? You know, so their, their criteria gotcha. at that time was, is the person like a 4.0 student, you know, or depending on what scale you're on, a four or five yep. student, and does the person have brilliant scores, and are they scholarly? Yep. So I didn't meet the, that criteria. Gotcha. And Harvard's very much about 
smart, and what they think will be movers and shakers, and people that they think have tremendous energy. And so thus you see so many people from Harvard, good and bad, good and bad, people with crazy energy <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. you know, do good things, do bad things, you know, but lots of leaders, like, you know, whether it's the Anthony Scaramucci's, the Jim Cramer's, the Rod Rosenstein's, the Alan Dershowitz's, I mean, all, they, they they admit yeah. for a different, and, and, and a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, woman leaders, Supreme Court judges, and so forth, but, but Harvard was a Barack Obama was at was in school with me. That was all right. And I have a famous story about <laughs> Barack, but they were very big on admitting for what they thought as drive, not just intelligence. Yeah, you must have been involved in other stuff. Then, what were your other pursuits in in high school? Were you volunteering? Were you no? But was always involved in really two things. I was involved in student government. Always, you know, always very involved in student government. Always involved in sport. And I was always developing some sort of business on the side. I was always doing some sort of business, <laughs> you know, whether it was black tapping driveways or shoveling snow, or I built a business that moved people back and forth from college to home. Wow. Good hand eye coordination, very okay athlete. You know, was like as a little kid, was probably a little bit chubby, used to shop in the husky section. There's a little challenging on me, Dr. Bills. <laughs> but, you know, it, but, but, you know, you sort of like, you live with those things though, because what happens is like, you could be as successful as you are, but if you remember yourself at 12 as a little chubby, yeah. you probably will, in some ways, that will be a part of your being forever. You know, you yeah. always have a little yeah. bit of that sort of like, you're, you're you know, you're, you know, I'm never going to be one of these 6'2 guys that looks a certain way, you know, in, right, in the, right, right. In the, and, and everybody has some of that in them. Scott, did that fuel some of your motivation? Was it uh, proving to somebody that, you know, that you could do these things or was that a separate motivational thread in your being it's very hard like it's very hard to untangle all these threads really the older i get the harder i find it to untangle all these things i mean yeah. it, it's it's a great question dr Griff. and unfortunately this will turn into almost a therapy session for myself if we keep going <laughs> but it's like what makes this person so driven and motivated versus these other people you know yeah i mean both yeah. my sisters later in life became highly motivated my sister lynn is a highly highly successful real estate person incredibly successful at it and different things drive yes. that. There's different anxieties. There's different things that drive it. You know, but you know, there's a great story about you know Joseph Kennedy. Behind every fortune made, there's some great crime. Behind every mm. great entrepreneur or every successful person, there's some kind of craziness or drive or insanity or something. And it's not like yeah. it's not like <laughs> it's not like it's not to be proud of it. It's not that you can't work on it. But I but I do think there's like you know you untangle. What caused that crazy level of motivation? You know, at first I look at it as like, oh, was my parents going broke at different times? You know, they, my dad worked for a company that went broke. Then right. he built a company that, that that did great, not great, and stuff like that. That drives some of it. There's that feeling of like a chubby little kid. And there's probably a little bit of insanity. You know, there, there's just a little <laughs> bit of craziness in all of us. That, that yeah. I say it jokingly, but, you know, Ben Stein, very interesting person, used to say, anybody that's going to be highly successful needs about 10 years where they're really at it where they're really at it 100% in some way or another. And that can be to the detriment of other aspects of their life as well. Uh, yeah. uh, 100%. I mean, there was a period of time where I spent so much time on just two pursuits, raising the kids and business that really, you know, there was no guys nights out. There was none of those other things. And it was, yeah. it was a simple period of time because I knew those were the two big priorities and it was a hard period of time. By the way, those are some great insights. Thanks for sharing that. That's uh 
uh, uh, that's a level that a lot of guests won't get to early on, and I appreciate that. But I wanted, uh, where did you go to, uh, remind us where you went to college. How did you make that decision? Sure. So I went to University of Illinois, and University of Illinois is, is a great state university. Um, you know, it's the great public university here. And it was really at a point in time when I was graduating in high school, it's the company my father worked for went broke, and we basically said, that's where we're going. Got it. And it was magnificent. It was magnificent. It's, you know, it's two and a half hours downstate. It was a wonderful place. And I attribute a lot of my success later to having gone there for college uh -huh. uh, because so many people choose to aim for the most elite place. Far more important. And I, I talk about this in jobs constantly. It's far more important to choose a job that you're comfortable with, that you're happy with, that you could then thrive in versus shooting for the job that's the golden ring where often you're sort of not really happy and you're really not thriving. Yeah. But University of Illinois was the perfect place. Love it. And I'm a huge fan of it. Now, now, uh, based on your experiences in high school, I, I'm guessing that you were, or, or maybe uh, you were involved in student government when you were at the University of Illinois? Yes, I was involved in student government at University of Illinois. I was also involved in my fraternity, which I know fraternities are such a bad name today, but they were such a great place for growing and learning yes. and managing relationships and all these things. It's, it's really... You've got this crazy situation with the fraternity system. Yes, there's all kinds of problems with it. They end up separating people in lots of ways, so bad. The good thing is they provide a tremendous social ability to navigate, to learn, to grow. We lived my first year with 30 guys in one room. Oh, my and this gosh. This is just a great learning experience in terms of, like, how do you navigate that? And it was, you know, it's a, from a different world. The kids wouldn't, parents and kids wouldn't allow it today. Yeah. But it was a great experience. And they've got this problem now in these big schools. Oh, my God. The universities have come down negatively on fraternities and sororities. At the same time, more kids want to join fraternities and sororities than ever. Yeah. But by cu cutting down on numbers of fraternities and sororities, but more kids want to join them. They've had the opposite impact of making them more elitist versus less. I, I absolutely agree that, that that's what's happening today. But I want to go back to a point you made uh, about how that was, uh, you know, in some ways formative. And I, and I think one of the things that is unique about our culture in the U.S. of A. is this uh, intense focus on rugged individualism. And what a fraternity did for me was teach me about being part of an organization and you know when you first joined it being part of a collective i guess that's what i would say being part of a collective just a piece of a collective and when i first uh, joined they knocked me down a few notches you know i come out of high school thinking i'm you know uh, all that and then you know as as a pledge you, you you're really not all that and we know in some parts it's play and ours wasn't all that onerous you know the the pledging uh, stuff that you hear about it at the extreme we didn't have that but it did knock us down a notch and, and teach humility. And then it taught me, anyway, about relationships and, and collective interests that I really didn't get a lot of exposure to before then. Does, does, that, ring a, a, does that ring true to you? I mean, absolutely. There's, there's so much of it that was like the pledging. The pledging, and, and you know, pledging has gotten out of hand in some places. But you have to remember, it's a whole generation of people that were not in the army, that were not in, in the military. And, right. and that whole generation of people would have gotten that pledging in a billion times more serious way if they'd been in the army. And this was some way, a way of getting some of that being brought down and rung, bring down all those kinds of things. There was also, you learn so many human things. One of the human things you learn is 
that the worst person that was a sophomore or junior, the most, the worst hazer, the person who wanted to be the worst of the pledges was typically the most insecure person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's obvious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the person who's insecure is not trying to build their other people up. It's trying to build them down. There's so many life lessons that were learned. Building teams, so again, they weren't in student government, they weren't in fraternity, they could be weren't in any student organization. But these student organizations do much, so much for teaching leadership and teaching how to deal with people and doing how to manage with people, good and bad. But you yeah. see it all. You see literally people that are very poorly behaved because this is their chance of power. Then you see other people that handle it well, that sort of always do it with a smile and a joke, say, Dad, it's going to yeah. be fine, just relax, it'll be good. But there's so many places where you can get that. I, you've talked a little bit about uh, you know uh, qualifying for Harvard, and, and you get an offer to go to Harvard. You go there. Um, you know what kinds of things uh, were happening for you personally at Harvard, and in terms of outside involvement, career choices. What were you thinking as you as you uh, uh, went along that path? You know, being on track, going on the right track, was at that point in life everything was sort of like yeah. you know you could be an accountant and it was a ten year track department, you could be a lawyer, it's a seven year track department. None of them were very passionate to me. None of them were very exciting to me. I was looking for a profession and to be able to support a family. And that was the that was it. And and yes. both were like, these are two different choices, and I guess I'll pick one of them and so forth and so on. And that's that's not all good or bad. It's but there's there's just a lot of that's how I was. And so went to law school for three straight years, had some fascinating experiences there, which hopefully we get a chance to touch on for a second. After law school, went to work for a large firm, you know, and just sort of went on track. And 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 this was a miserable, miserable, miserable experience. Oh and, my but, goodness! But a yeah. great, but 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 a great learning experience. What I learned after a few years in a big law firm was the the, the people that were happier in their career, at some point, were able to take one step back and think about what do they want to accomplish. Mm. Do they want to be the world's best at this? Do they want to manage teams? Do they want to be a rainmaker? Whatever it is, and and those people, and I think this is probably true in almost any profession. Those people that ultimately decide, this is what I want to do. Even if what you're deciding to do is, I just want a job and to be a father. Yeah. I just want to make a mm -hmm. living and be a father. Whatever it is, what I found professionally is the people that are happiest in what they do have put some time into ultimately assessing and determining, this is what I want to do. And in gotcha. those first several years in my 20s, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until I was 28, 30 that I started to have more clarity about Okay, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Here's what I want to do. And and, and, and then I, I did a podcast recently on the most important job decision. And and this was about something we talked about earlier, and it goes back to the college versus elite college discussion. But the most important job choice I ever made was choosing as my second law firm a place where I had friends that were at that were enjoying it and happy. And, and, gotcha. and I figure if I'm in a position, if I'm in a place where I'm happy and enjoying it, or, or an environment like that, then I'll figure out how to thrive again. You hold a unique position in American healthcare, and uh, you know that's been built up over a period of time. I understand that. I'm sure there's a lot of hard work that went into it. Talk us through that journey from your working as a junior attorney in, in a big firm. You move to a place where you think you can be happier then what? What happened to, to... Yeah, so this is, this is a, thank you, that's a great segue. So this was about 30 years ago, and what, what, what happened was, so at a large law firm, so I, I spent three years in the law firm, went through for a year, you know, basically 
just tapped out once a year worked for almost a year for my father's business very small business that was that was fine it was actually fine my my father was fantastic but it was not what I was going to do long run. And by that point, I had more clarity of what I wanted to do. At, at the large law firm, at, at the large law firm, you were either treated well or poorly based on whether you had clients or not. If you controlled ah, yes. the business, you were treated well. If you didn't control the business, you were treated like a dog. I didn't want to treat anybody like a dog, but I also didn't want to be treated like a dog. So I came out of that experience thinking, okay, if I go back to work at a law firm, my goal has to be to both thrive and find a way to build a practice. So right. in my in my late twenties, I started Becker's Healthcare, and it was really when I first started it, it was about branding myself as a healthcare lawyer to build a business as a lawyer in the legal business. And so gotcha. you know, so the, for the first five seven years or so, it was it was really about that. And then what happens is we're, I was building this thing newsletter. We had a small conference and so forth. And this goes back literally thirty years ago. Our surgery center conferences and it's. 31st year or so now, and the law firm, because I was a young person, wouldn't really support it, so I had to pay for it myself, I had to grow it myself, I had to fund it myself, and yeah. that ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me, because I was able to control it and own it for the long run, and and, and what happens is about five, seven years into it, it, it was making some money, I started to understand that this is actually a business, not just a marketing thing, right. and at that point, it really turned from being a legal marketing, trying to build a brand as a lawyer into what we think of today as a business-to-business -business media company, as a, as a media company around healthcare. I, I specialized in law in the healthcare area. It started doing everything I'd done was just me writing about and, and, and talking about what I was seeing and what I was doing and what trends I was watching. Weird. It was far more interesting than the original idea of being a lawyer and a real estate investor. It was just far more interesting. Scott, I hear that story so often that you know, somebody will start something for one reason, and then the uh, being able to realize that there's a, a different opportunity, uh, one that's more uh, uh, relevant, or you know, being able to recognize that and pivot is a key attribute of success. It, it, and it sounds like you did that at some point. You realize, hey, this is not just a marketing uh, a, a ploy, or, or not ploys, maybe not a good word. This is yeah. just not just marketing tactic. This is a business in and of itself that would bring value to, uh, to to healthcare. The most successful people in different things can both do a great job and connect dots. And, and so at some point I was able to connect dots to say, oh, this is a real thing. And I started to learn more about it. I started to hire people full-time into that business. And that was a, a whole change from where it was. So we started to hire people full-time into that business. And and what really happens is, and is you know, anybody that's a success, success knows that at the end of the day, so much of it is about building teams. And, and yes. you talk about rugged individualist, but the reality is all of us know if you do anything successful, you build teams. So sometime, probably in my early 30s, I started to hire people full time into it. One of the people I hired was the niece of a client, this woman, Jessica Cole. Who ended up being the leader of Becker's Healthcare, the the, the CEO and president today, and partner in it? I had hired a bunch of people, and after a few years, I was running a full time legal practice. I was doing this. Yeah. I really put her in charge, and she was able to sort of turn that into a completely different thing and understand the opportunities, yeah. see it, and grow it. And was able to uh, on the commercial side make it go. Well, we stayed very close to the content side and, and remained very involved as sort of chief content officer and so forth. So it was no, it's a fascinating evolution from 
one point to a very different point in goal. Yeah, you know, it's always hard to go back as you as you mentioned earlier. It's hard to untangle what led to what. You know, it, there are so many factors. But are, are there any pointers that you would have for those who are aspiring to to build a business uh, as to when you know uh, uh, the timing is right, or is that just an intuitive sense that you had? Were there mentors that you looked to? How did you make those decisions? First, in building a business, we always think about three things, and, and we think about. Are you in a specific niche? What's the niche you're in? You know, and are you filling a need? The second is, can you take care of customers really well and meet the needs of customers? And third is, can you build a great team? So we think about niche-centric, customer-centric, team-centric. So those three things. Got it. Then to the other question, in terms of starting a business, the first part that was successful was in the surgery center area. And, 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 and this was before when surgery centers were just sort of getting going and people would say, oh, that was such genius that you started this in the surgery center side. And what I'd have to, what, and I would, I would tell people, no, it was not, and it truly was not. It's not being humble. I started in three different areas. I started in that, disease management, cardiovascular, and, and it turned out the one where the audience and people were really responsive was in the surgery center area. Gotcha. What I was smart about was recognizing what was working and doubling down on it. And, and so gotcha. we, we're, we're, people may be brilliant or they put huge consultings behind it, something like that, but you, you really never know until you're really asking for sales, really asking for audience, yes. seeing what people want, what they think. You know, you have to know your business well. You have to study what you're doing well. You have to know your people well. So, so whether in the law firm where I had fantastic people that I built teams around, recognizing early, these are great people. I am going to double down on those people. And some of those people ended up being leaders in the law firm, the McGuire Woods Law Firm, and they are today. One of them was on the executive committee, two have run the, the department, the healthcare department, others have been involved in that. And the same thing in the business. I was able to really recognize pretty early, and I was attuned to this because it's how law firms work. You look for bright people that, that will do things. You don't really worry about are they 60 or 20. You just worry about are they competent. Right. And just at a very young age, was outperforming everybody. So at some point, she was about 26, and I put her in charge of the 10 other employees. And of course, half the other employees were like, I'm not working for a 26-year-old woman. I'm not doing it. You know, it's like, yeah, I was like, you don't have to. Fine, go. Okay. But it was was sort of recognizing, doubling down on talent, and when you recognize that something's working, double down on it. So we we, we always think about customer-centric. If you have great customers, any business starts, we're taking care of those. And, And, you know, Banner Aetna, it's trying to understand who are our most important group plans, who we're working with closest, and we better make sure we're taking care of them. Or, or wherever I, I, our, whoever is the, the customer, make sure we better be taking care of them well, we better be doing a better job in our niche, whatever that specific niche is, than others are doing in it, and then we can't do any of that without great teams. You know, And I, yeah. I had a great mentor in the law firm who had built teams before me, and it was pretty clear to me, ah, God, if you want to build a practice, you can't, the rugged individual thing is long gone. You just couldn't do it. You had to have a team. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. You know. Now, let me ask you, uh, are there any principles you follow in building great teams? And, you know, uh, how do you recognize talent? I mean, you look at drive, intelligence, can they work with people well? You know, it's sort of like, are they, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, you know, you see this where the most competent people in the world, if they can't work with people well, have real limits to where they go. Mm-hmm. I sort of start yeah. with those characteristics. And then I also recognize for 100 years now that, Every bet you make on a person, you, you don't know what you have. Like you don't know what you have in a job. You don't know what you have in an employee. 
until you've been there for a couple of years and know the person for a couple of years. Yes. I mean, I, I've had so many people over the years say, I've hired this person. He or she is going to be magnificent. And, and I would always say, you know, you, you can't get mad at yourself about the hiring decision. You do the best you can, but you're not going to know if somebody's a good teammate, a good partner, a good colleague until you work with them. And then what happens is you have to view it as good colleagues, good teammates are harder to find, are not easy to find. And so when you have them, you, you better double down and embrace them. And then, then the yes. team building philosophy was always that the leaders that get to one spot, they have a bunch of people working for them and they are focused on them thriving, meaning the leader thriving. The people, and, and you could get to a certain spot just by sheer willpower like that, but, mm -hmm. but you can't get to the next spot without basically saying, yes, I'm thriving, but I also need all these people around me thriving. And that's what leads to great teams and teams that can grow to the next level to a whole different thing. You know, it's, it's critical point, you, critical point. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, people have all these terms for that, Scott, like servant leadership, et cetera. But it's just fundamentally a prerequisite to uh, world-class performance. It, you can't get there unless you know how to uh, uh, to help people uh, along that journey with you. It's just, I don't think it's possible uh, to, to do it as a rugged individualist. We couldn't agree more. Early on in my career, I'd served on two different boards of directors. One had a CEO who was magnificent but he was the one magnificent leader at that company. The other one had a CEO, but then had lots and lots of people around that were also fantastic. And, and you know, one company thrived for a very long time. One did not because it requires lots of people and they got to be thriving, not as sort of a micromanage thriving. They got to be thriving and really thriving. Yeah. I, you know, I heard a principle that's, I, I think, related, and, and I'd love to hear your your thoughts on it uh, very early on in my career. And I can't remember where it came from. I wish I'd love to be able to attribute it. I'm sure lots of people have said something similar, but it went like this. Um, you're not going to be wildly successful if you try to do everything. Figure out what you're really good at. Become, if you can, world-class at that. And then surround yourself with people who make your weaknesses irrelevant. No, and I'll just take that a step further. I love that 100%. Like at one point when I was building Becker's Healthcare, I was doing everything. I was involved in sales. I was involved in content. I was involved in writing. And, and you, you get to a spot. It, you have to get to a spot where everybody that you've hired can do that job that you were doing better than you could. Bingo. You, you follow yeah. me? So, and, yep. and it's not it's not false humility. Like There's no way I could do what our CEO does. You know, she manages a team mm -hmm. in a way I could never do it. I just couldn't do it. It's not a false humility. I couldn't do it. We have an editor-in-chief, you know, 100 years ago, we were writing three articles a week. I could do it. I couldn't do it. I could not do what that person does, and it would it would falter horribly if we did. We've got, you know, yep. a chief yep. information person. Private equity funds, investors, I should say, have a love-hate relationship with leaders. And, and the love-hate relationship with leaders and founders is, they never want to be in a spot where they're reliant on the leader founder. So they're always trying to build a deeper institution that's not as reliant on the leader founder. And it leads to a love-hate relationship. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing. And there's a lot right with that. There's a lot wrong with it. But at the end of the day, if you could be your own, you know, your own owner operator, you understand that the game is, and it's hard ego-wise. It's hard yeah, yeah. to get to the spot where you have to have everybody in places, and then you're very vulnerable too, because yes. you can't have just one person, you gotta have lots, because 
person leaves, doesn't like it, wants to do something else. You have to make sure you've got a deep enough team. And it's 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 it, it's hard on the ego, but it becomes an evolution and a necessity in any organization. Yes. I mean, you've got magnificent leadership at Banner, quite frankly. I think it's is still is still Peter Fine, right? It, it's, oh, yes. It's 23 t- years uh, Peter Fine's been at the helm. Yeah. Really, when you talk about in the old days, people talked about a level five or level six leader. He's one of the magnificent examples of that where not everything has to be about him. He, he's yes. done a magnificent job. Of, of really, quite frankly, being a pretty humble leader and growing a magnificent organization and, and, and building around himself magnificent leaders where, you know, I, I had to actually ask the question. I, I remember it was Peter. I knew Peter from way back in the day in Wisconsin, but a crazy yes. successful person. If you're going to have lots, if you build a, a system, an organization the size of Banner, you can't do it without lots and lots of leaders. And if that top leader is a top-down, you know, difficult person. It just doesn't work. Yes. And and, and I would uh, uh, take it a step further and tell you that even uh, the leaders who have uh, left Banner are now rising in other organizations. You look at, you know, who who uh, uh, is in place as CEOs of hospitals or or uh, chief financial officers. And many of them in, in the state of Arizona, they they learned their uh, strategies at Banner Health. I want to ask you about your perspective on healthcare. You sit in a unique position because you get all of this information coming from, you know, payers and investors and and you know patients and and uh, what's your take on our current circumstance in healthcare and what do you see as the road forward? Uh, big question. You know, a lot of nuance there. A lot of uh, no, of course, of course. So I I start with one that we have a math problem and 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 so the math problem is as follows. And it's and I'll use doctors as the metaphor for this, but but it's it's true of clinicians and technicians and everything else. We have 330 million people and we have a million sixty thousand doctors. And, and 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 this is just an absolute math problem. So for example, in almost any area, we all know this. If you're privileged enough, you know if you want to get the right specialist, you almost have to know somebody. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's become that, and it's horribly worse in certain communities, certain rural areas, and others. I was on the phone yesterday with a leader of a health system uh, in relatively rural Texas. They have one neurologist for, I think, a 300,000-person population. But this is, this is a horrible math problem. And, and, and I think, quite frankly, people disagree with me. They hate this perspective. I think it's far worse with specialists than primary care, and I'll tell you why in a second. But, but with, with specialists... We've got to figure out a way to create many more specialists much more quickly. And and there's obviously, there's been some potential solutions. They talked about creating, there's there's probably enough medical schools, but the medical schools can't admit any more people because there's not enough residency spots. Right. So in one of the bills last year, there was 4,000 additional residency spots. It didn't get passed. It's so, it's so horribly needed. We turn out sixteen to 18,000 doctors a year against a population of 330 million people. And we've got a situation where half the doctors end up part-time by their mid-40s, uh, and that's fine, but that leaves the gap of the math problem of 330 million people, aging, growing population, compared to the number of physician hours available, it is horribly disjointed. Horribly yes. disjointed. And, and again, it, it flows through to every advanced practice stage, every other stage as well, but doctors are easy to focus on. We've got a medical education system that was set up pre-internet. So right now, yeah. a doctor goes to school for four years of medical school, four years of residency, often a fellowship. I mean, it's it with today so much information at one's fingertips. 
the idea that we don't get doctors out for eight to 10 years is to me insane. In, in India, some other countries, they do it in almost half the time. I mean, it's literally, it's, it's literally ridiculous. And, and, and it seems like it's hard to get people to address it. But if we can get people out in six or seven years versus eight or nine years, we lessen the debt they all have. I don't think, I got to believe we create competent doctors, particularly with presenceships and working and, and working with people over years. And enough of them, especially if, we, if we're good about how we recruit physicians in a much shorter period of time than we're doing. I mean, if we create great doctors now, but by the time they get out of med school and residency, they're already burnt out and they've got so much debt. So we create yep, great doctors, yep. okay. but we ought to be able to do so in a lot shorter time. That, to me, is an absolute fundamental problem. In, in the old days, we would fix it through immigration, but obviously immigration is one solution and fantastic. But when we do so, it's a little bit of a zero-sum game because now we're leaving whatever country those doctors come from with less doctors. I mean, so it's not like, it's not like we're yeah. we're solving our problem, but we're not, we're not helping somebody else. Hospitals are under tremendous siege. They got leakage of all their business. They're having tremendous competition for the small amount of doctors left in the country from the big PE funds, from the big payers. You know, Optum's now the biggest employer of physicians in the country. You know, yep. the, the, the cost in, in all the doctors a generation ago, when I was growing up, a doctor would come out of the military. He would he would immigrate here. He'd go to a small town, and they would have great reimbursement rates in the small towns. So there's lots yep. of people bring him there. There's a great lifestyle. Now, everybody's moving to the major metropolitan areas. So you've got, you've got these multiple, multiple confluences of trouble in the bidding up of the cost of doctors because it's supply, demand, and math problem. We need, we need more doctors, more nurses, more clinicians, and there's lots of challenges. And obviously technology can supplement some of that, but, you know, I mean, we're, we're, in, we're in a world now where when my parents have a serious problem, you know, half the time they end up back in the ER again, which is, which is yeah. I, I do think when I start off problems, I look at the doctor-to-patient, the doctor-to-people ratio and how flawed it is and how worse it's getting. And then there's that, that cascades into a whole bunch of different. It cascades into financial health for hospitals. So in order doctors take care of patients, hospitals are closing different units in, in different areas. I mean, there's, there's a, and Dr. Rose, I could talk forever about whatever issue you want to talk about, but I'll shut up for a second. No, no, no. That, that's, a, that's a very interesting perspective because I've also heard it said that, that uh, we don't have a shortage of doctors. We have a shortage of primary care doctors. But you're you're uh, you're you're taking sort of the opposite view of that, which I think is fascinating. And I understand uh, I understand your point there. I, uh, uh, integration seems to me to be a major uh, problem, and I, I don't think anybody would dispute that. Are, are you seeing uh, uh, potential solutions? In other words, uh, there are pockets of information on patients, on specialists, uh, from specialists. And they don't talk to each other. Uh, the specialist you see might not have any information on the primary care visit you had last week. Uh, how do you see that problem as as contributory? I mean, I think that there's probably improvement coming in those areas. I think we're in a situation where, you know, specialists, primary care physicians are all sort of exhausted. You know, so if you don't make it easy for them, and I just, maybe that's an overstatement, but but those that are practicing full time medicine to me strike me as largely you know, exhausted, you know, unless they've built a procedure practice, they could do their X procedures a month, make a great living. They seem exhausted. You know, I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's, um, yeah. and so the, the, the distinction with primary care is there, it, it's very easy in a lot of primary care areas for great advanced practitioners, well-educated advanced practitioners, physician assistants and others 
to do a lot of what we expect from primary care physicians. And and, okay, it, yeah. and it's not it's not that we might not be able to replace the primary care doctor who's been practicing for 30 years, but there is so much that could be done by particularly with the the amount of information out there today by well-trained PAs and advanced practitioners practicing at the top of their license. In contrast, at least now, until we get a machine to do it or some way to do it, that advanced practitioner, yes, they could do the intake for a neurosurgeon, they could do the intake for certain areas, but they can't sort of do necessarily what the neurosurgeon does, what the oncologist yep. does. Maybe they can at some point, but it's, yeah. it seems yeah. harder. I know in certain areas of the country, if you want to get a primary care physician today in Florida, in some communities, you need to hire a concierge. You know, you got to have a concierge doctor, which is like, and, and there's that going up because there's a shortage of the primary care doctors too. But but a lot of the primary care gets offset by urgent care, by all these other avenues, whereas a specialist, when you get a specialist for something, it's not, you can't go to the urgent care for it. You can't, right. you know, it, okay. it, there's just different. So I, I, so my view is, yes, there are places in urban communities, rural communities, where it's just not enough primary care, no question. And, and some of that could be replaced by, can be replaced by, you know, uh, uh, by PAs, telehealth, and so forth. And telehealth is not as good as an in-person visit, but it's the best we could do in our places. Yep, yep. But wh when I get to, uh, to a rural community, in a pretty big rural community, and there's one dermatologist for 4,000 people. There's not enough people to take care of the Mohs surgery. There's yeah. just not. They can't staff behavioral health hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, just not a psychiatrist. And so it's like yeah. you have to you have to flood the zone with enough people to be able to Got fix it. the supply-demand issue. I think it's a math problem. I get the point now, and it's, it, it's, uh, uh, it's a very interesting one. As you know, it's not a very common one that uh, for people to raise uh, that we don't have enough specialists. But I, I love uh, a sort of... Uh, uh, different perspectives, because I think it's through that process that we come up with new ideas that may end up actually solving this, because, because we've been uh, working on, what, uh, value-based care now for a couple of decades, and uh, I haven't noticed that prices uh, have been slowed very much. I mean, we, we still have increasing prices, and so the question comes up, uh, is this uh, version of value-based care going to get us there? And I, I would look at it from two perspectives. This is this is my view, which also may not be very popular, is that uh, uh, when we look at uh, uh, value-based care as it currently is done, we're talking about first it's based on a fee-for-service model, right? Because you have to charge for something and volume matters. Even if it's a, a fixed uh, price for that volume, it still matters. Uh, and then the second piece is this, this uh, fascination with pay-for-performance for physicians, which has uh, very little data behind it, very little data behind it. You can do a Cochrane review and, and say, well, what does that say? And there are lots of reasons, and, and Don Berwick pointed this out in the 90s, there are lots of reasons to be cautious about that. And, and uh, in a recent uh, conversation, uh, I asked uh, folks, now, when you're in the room and your physician is, is concocting a, 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 a care plan just for you, do you really want them thinking about their income, up or down, right. uh, at that moment? And, and so my, my bias is that docs ought to be on salary. And it's interesting. I, I just got something. It was, came from Becker's of uh, Hospital Review that there's been a shift in uh, physician payment plans. And the biggest change has, has been towards salary. 33% now the yeah. doctors. Uh, what's your view on that, our current iteration of value-based care? Value-based care is sort of um, is a euphemism for so many different things. And, and so <laughs> I'll just go through two or three of them very quickly. 
first is big systems tend to love value-based care when they're able to make that economic model more predictable. And so they tend to convert to it for the for the economic reasons, drive it. You see great systems like Intermountain now does more than half of the work in some sort of capacitor value-based world. And and I don't see that as as necessarily like I, I see it as and they're and they're and they're and they're more profitable than a lot of the fee for service systems because they've been able to make that conversion. It's more predictable revenue, more predictable cost. And that doesn't make it better or worse care. It's just a different economic model. The real right. drive and love for value-based care got really picked up on the pandemic for some of the wrong reasons. And I, and I won't pick on the insurance companies too much because I know Banner Adams is partly an insurance company. But 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 it, it, it got the insurance companies cleaned up during the pandemic, uh, the Uniteds of the world, the Cygnus of the world, the others of the world, in part, the Medicare Advantage of the world, because care was not being delivered, because their procedures True. were stopped. And so the, the medical coverage ratios went way down and the profits went way up. And thus, you got a huge conversion in the world to, oh, my God, Medicare Advantage is the best thing ever. Capitation is the best thing ever. But for some of the not really, I think, necessarily some of the right reasons. The third thing and data point I'll point to is the two countries who have had to go the hardest core towards value-based care are the biggest countries in the world, are China and India. And, and, and they've had to do so through just they don't have enough doctors, clinicians, nurses. There, there's no way around it. They had to convert to as much preventive care as possible because the concept being we need to be preventive because on the back end, we don't have the doctors and nurses that we need. So here's what I would say. I would say, as is the old adage, trust but verify. If I look at the situation in India with a billion four people, the concept of not having enough doctors is an, and clinicians is an absolute disaster. You could try and be preventive care-based, we all know at the end of the day, preventive care really means we, we need the buy-in from the 330 million of us, and we're a continuum of people. We're just a continuum of people on every single way, stretch of the mention. We're a continuum of willpower. You know, I act well in this life, well part of my life. I act poorly in that part of my life. I over-snack last night. I over this. We're all a continuum of a million different things. The model in India, where they went through several months during the pandemic, where their hospitals and health systems were just overridden because they just didn't have enough doctors and nurses. If you remember this period of time a couple years ago, China, the same thing. China had to lock everybody up for as long as possible because, because on the backside, they don't have enough doctors and nurses to take care of their people. So, so right. people could talk about all they want about payment models. I don't think it's about payment models. I think it's about having enough doctors and nurses to take care of us. The payment model dispute, like this is the beautiful thing about Medicare Advantage, and you know this. We all know this. Medicare Advantage has now become more than half of Medicare. Yes, yes, yes. Trump was for Medicare Advantage. Biden was against Medicare Advantage. Then Biden converted, became pro-Medicare Advantage. Of course, there's the insurance companies, the lobbies got with him and so forth, but he became pro-Medicare Advantage. The dirty little secret of Medicare Advantage is it's not better care and it's costing Americans more yes. than Medicare. Yes, I mean, yes. the, the dirty secret is as we move towards all these things, you know, and I know I'm not, you know, I'm not um. Oh my goodness! United, CVS are two of the largest five companies in America by revenues. Not good nor bad, but this idea that it's a payment model issue is, I think, I think it's it's the wrong narrative. The, the real narrative is is we need more doctors and nurses <laughs> to take care of people, plus technology, of course. But the idea that like a doctor does something bad because he does more procedures, of course, you're gonna have a percentage of doctors that operate in every knee they see because they're like that's how they get paid. Of course, you're gonna have some of that. You're gonna have some of that in anything you do. 
If you have doctors on capitation completely, you have some doctors that are out for lunch for three hours. When you've got different, whatever, whatever economic system you have, you're going to have a percentage of people that abuse the heck out of it. The reality is we have a simple math problem. We don't have enough doctors and nurses. I don't want to be in the preventive care system that's touted from China and India. In China and India, this is not a knock on them. They've got a billion four, a billion five people. Yeah. It's a brutal amount of people to take care of. It's a very hard thing to do. And you need so many doctors to do it. But they try and rely on a preventive care, but it just doesn't really work. So, I, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess helpful. It's, it's part of the solution. But the real solution is we need enough doctors and nurses and people can debate the payment model thing all they want. But it's what we find out constantly is we debate the payment model. We move toward more towards capitation. Ah, the insurance companies are making so much more money. We've built so much more Medicare Advantage companies, so much more Centines of the world, Medicaid Advantage companies, you know, Medicaid managed care companies. But, but none of that's flowing through to hospitals and physicians like it should. I mean, so we need more doctors. We need more nurses. We, quite frankly, need enough hospitals. But the idea that it's a payment model issue, I think, is the is 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 just is hogwash. Interesting. I love that. The, the the real issue is we have a math problem. We don't have enough doctors and nurses, clinicians. A fascinating perspective that you don't hear often, and and I I like that. I like bringing in different perspectives. So that, you know, uh, that's one that I that I had not embraced before, but I will give it some serious thought. Um, it, it, we're going to wrap up here because I know you've got to uh, uh, tell us what you're doing later this afternoon. Well, we have the beauty of the last few years of coaching high school tennis. And so I get to go watch a couple of our kids still compete in the state tournament today. Uh, but they're now in the back draw. They've had great. They won their first two rounds, lost a round. But but great, great kids. And I take great pleasure in it. You know, it's like, uh, you know, like like so many of these things in life. I'm a fine tennis player. I was never as good as I'd like to be, so I enjoy coaching now. You know, it is. If you can't yes. do, you teach. So this is where I'm at. You know, oh, that's fantastic. And I uh, best of luck in that tournament. I, I hope uh, that you guys uh, get a win out of it. And I, I, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Uh, Scott, you've been so generous with your time, and it has been an enjoyable conversation. There's so much more to talk about. Uh, I, I hope at, at some point in the future we'll have the opportunity to talk again. Thank you for being here. We would love to. You do a wonderful job of, of making it easy to talk. So thank you so much. I hope I didn't put too many people to sleep, but thank you. With that, we're going to say bye-bye. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare. Featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going. And hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.